Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Inyash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Due to a combination of the length of chapters 21 and 22, and my targeted podcast length, this episode will include the conclusion of chapter 21, as well as the first half of chapter 22. Second half of chapter 21, Rationalization. A silent figure trudged wearily through the halls of Hogwarts in the direction of Ravenclaw. Harry had gone straight from the meeting with Draco to dinner and stayed at dinner barely long enough to choke down a few fast gulps of food before going off to bed. It wasn't even 7pm yet, but it was well past bedtime for Harry. He'd realized last night that he wasn't able to use the time turner on Saturday until after the book reading contest was already over. But he could still use the time turner on Friday night and gain time that way. So Harry had pushed himself to stay awake until 9pm on Friday, when the protective shell opened, and then used the four hours remaining on the time-turner to spin back to 5pm and collapse into sleep. He'd woken up around 2am on Saturday morning, just as planned, and read for the next 12 hours straight. And it still hadn't been enough. And now, Harry would be going to sleep rather early for the next few days until his sleep cycle caught up again. The portrait on the door asked Harry some dumb riddle meant for 11-year-olds that he answered without the words even passing through his conscious mind, and then Harry staggered up the stairs to his dorm room, changed into his pajamas, and collapsed into bed. And found that his pillow seemed rather lumpy. Harry groaned. He sat up reluctantly, twisted in bed, and lifted up his pillow. This revealed a note, two golden galleons, and a book titled Occlumency, The Hidden Art. Harry picked up the note and read. My, you do get yourself into trouble, and quickly. James himself was no match for you. You have made a powerful enemy. Snape commands the loyalty, admiration, and fear of all House Slytherin. You cannot trust any of that house now, whether they come to you in friendly guise or fearsome. From now on, you must not meet Snape's eyes. He is a legilimens, and he can read your mind if you do. I have enclosed a book which may help you learn to protect yourself, though there is only so far you can get without a tutor. Still, you may hope to at least detect intrusion. So that you may find extra time in which to study occlumency, I have enclosed two galleons, which is the price of answer sheets and homework for the first year history of magic class. Professor Binns having given the same test and same assignments every year since he died. Your newfound friends the Weasley twins should be able to sell you a copy. It goes without saying that you must not get caught with it in your possession. Of Professor Quirrell, I know little. He is a Slytherin and a defense professor, and that is two marks against him. Consider carefully any advice he gives you, and tell him nothing you do not wish known. Dumbledore only pretends to be insane. He is extremely intelligent, and if you continue to step into closets and vanish, he will certainly deduce your possession of an invisibility cloak, if he has not done so already. Avoid him whenever possible, hide the Cloak of Invisibility somewhere safe, not your pouch, any time you cannot avoid him, and step with great care in his presence. Please be more careful in the future, Harry Potter. Signed, Santa Claus. Harry stared at the note. It did seem to be pretty good advice. Of course, Harry wasn't going to cheat in history class even if they gave him a dead monkey for a professor. But Severus's legitimacy... Whoever sent this note knew a lot of important, secret things, and was willing to tell Harry about them. The note was still warning him against Dumbledore stealing the cloak, but at this point Harry honestly had no clue if that was a bad sign. It could just be an understandable mistake. 
there seemed to be some sort of intrigue going on inside Hogwarts. Maybe if Harry compared stories between Dumbledore and the note sender, he could work out a combined picture that would be accurate? Like, if they both agreed on something, then... Well, whatever. Harry stuffed everything into his pouch and turned up the quieter and pulled the cover over his head and died. It was Sunday morning and Harry was eating pancakes in the Great Hall, sharp quick bites, glancing nervously at his watch every few seconds. It was 8.02am and in precisely two hours and one minute it would be exactly one week since he'd seen the Weasleys and crossed over onto Platform 9 and 3 quarters. And the thought had occurred to him, Harry didn't know if this was a valid way to think about the universe, he didn't know anything anymore, but it seemed possible that... Not enough interesting things had happened to him over the last week. When he was done eating breakfast, Harry planned to go straight up to his room and hide in the bottom level of his trunk and not talk to anyone until 10.03 a.m. And that was when Harry saw the Weasley twins walking toward him. One of them was carrying something concealed behind his back. He should scream and run away. He should scream and run away. Whatever this was, it could very well be... The grand finale. He really should just scream and run away. With a resigned feeling that the universe would come and get him anyway, Harry continued slicing at the pancake with his fork and knife. He couldn't muster the energy. That was the sad truth. Harry knew now how people felt when they were tired of running, tired of trying to escape fate, and they just fell to the ground and let the horrifically befanged and tentacled demons of the darkest abyss drag them off to their unspeakable destiny. The Weasley twins drew closer. And yet closer. Harry ate another bite of pancake. The Weasley twins arrived, grinning brightly. Hello, Fred, Harry said dully. One of the twins nodded. Hello, George, the other twin nodded. You sound tired, said George. You should cheer up, said Fred. Look what we got you. And George took, from behind Fred's back, a cake with twelve flaming candles. There was a pause as the Ravenclaw table stared at them. That's not right, said someone. Harry Potter was born on the 31st of Jul- He is coming, said a huge hollow voice that cut through all conversation like a sword of ice. The one who will tear apart the fairies! Dumbledore had leapt out of his throne and run straight over to the head table and seized hold of the woman speaking those awful words. Fox had appeared in a flash, and all three of them vanished in a crack of fire. There was a shocked pause, followed by heads turning in the direction of Harry Potter. I didn't do it, Harry said in a tired voice. That was a prophecy, someone at the table hissed. I bet it's about you. Harry sighed. He stood up from his seat, raised his voice, and said very loudly over the conversations that were starting up, It's not about me! Obviously! I'm not coming here, I'm already here! Harry sat back down again. The people who had been looking at him turned away again. Someone else at the table said, Then who is it about? And with a dull, leaden sensation, Harry realized who wasn't already at Hogwarts. Call it a wild guess, but Harry had a feeling the undead Dark Lord would be showing up one of these days. The conversation continued on around him. Not to mention, tear apart the very what? I thought I heard Tolrani start to say something with an S just before the Edmaster grabbed her. 
Like, soul? Sun? If someone's going to tear apart the sun, we're really in trouble. That seemed rather unlikely to Harry, unless the world contained scary things which had heard of David Criswell's ideas about starlifting. So, Harry said in tired tones, this happens every Sunday at breakfast, does it? No, said a student who might have been in his seventh year, frowning grimly. It doesn't. Harry shrugged. Whatever. Anyone want some birthday cake? But it's not your birthday, said the same student who'd objected last time. That was the cue for Fred and George to start laughing, of course. Even Harry managed a weary smile. As the first slice was served to him, Harry said, I've had a really long week. And Harry was sitting in the cavern level of his trunk, slid shut and locked so no one could get in, a blanket pulled over his head, waiting for the week to be over. 10.02 but just to be sure, 10.04, and the first week was done. Harry breathed a sigh of relief and gingerly pulled the blanket off of his head. A few moments later, he had emerged into the bright sunlit air of his dorm. Shortly after, and he was in the Ravenclaw common room. A few people looked at him, but no one said anything or tried to talk to him. Harry found a nice wide writing desk, pulled back a comfortable chair, and sat down. From his pouch, he drew a sheet of paper and a pencil. Mum and Dad had told Harry in no uncertain terms that while they understood his enthusiasm for leaving home and getting away from his parents, he was to write them every week without fail, just so they knew that he was alive, unharmed, and not in prison. Harry stared down at the blank sheet of paper. Let's see. After leaving his parents at the train station, he'd... gotten acquainted with a boy raised by Darth Vader, become friends with the three most infamous pranksters in Hogwarts, met Hermione, then there'd been the incident with the sorting hat, Monday he'd been given a time machine to treat his sleep disorder, gotten an invisibility cloak from an unknown benefactor, rescued seven Hufflepuffs by staring down five scary older boys, one of whom had threatened to break his finger, realized that he possessed a mysterious dark side, learned to cast Frigidiro in Charms class, and gotten started on his rivalry with Hermione. Tuesday had introduced astronomy, taught by Professor Aurora Sinistra, who was nice, and history of magic, taught by a ghost who ought to be exercised and replaced with a tape recorder. Wednesday, he'd been pronounced the most dangerous student in the classroom. Thursday, let's not even think about Thursday... Friday, the incident in potions class, followed by his blackmailing the headmaster, followed by the defense professor having him beaten up in class, followed by the defense professor turning out to be the most awesome human being who still walked the face of the earth. Saturday, he'd lost a bet and gone on his first date and started redeeming Draco. And then this morning, Professor Trelawney's unheard prophecy might or might not indicate that an immortal Dark Lord was about to attack Hogwarts. Harry mentally organized his material and started writing. Dear Mum and Dad, Hogwarts is a lot of fun. I learned how to violate the second law of thermodynamics in charms class, and I met a girl named Hermione Granger who reads faster than I do. I'd better leave it at that. Your loving son, Harry James Potter Evans Varys. End chapter 21 First half of chapter 22, The Scientific Method. A small study room, near but not in the Ravenclaw dorm, 
one of the many, many unused rooms of Hogwarts. Greystone the floors, red brick the walls, dark-stained wood the ceiling, four glowing glass globes set into the four walls of the room. A circular table that looked like a wide slab of black marble set on thick black marble legs for columns, but which had proved to be very light, weight and mass both, and wasn't difficult to pick up and move around if necessary. Two comfortably cushioned chairs which had seemed at first to be locked to the floor in inconvenient places, but which would, the two of them had finally discovered, scoot around to where you stood as soon as you leaned over in a posture that looked like you were about to sit down. There also seemed to be a number of bats flying around the room. That was where future historians would one day record, if the whole project ever actually amounted to anything, the scientific study of magic had begun with two young first-year Hogwarts students. Harry James Potter Evans Varys, theorist, and Hermione Jean Granger, experimenter and test subject. Harry was doing better in classes now, at least the classes he considered interesting. He'd read more books, and not books for 11-year-olds either. He'd practiced transfiguration over and over during one of his extra hours every day, taking the other hour for beginning occlumency. He was taking the worthwhile classes seriously, not just turning in his homework every day, but using his free time to learn more than was required, to read other books beyond the given textbooks, looking to master the subject and not just memorize a few test answers, to excel. You didn't see that much outside Ravenclaw. And now, even within Ravenclaw, his only remaining competitors were Padma Patil, whose parents came from a non-English-speaking culture and thus had raised her with an actual work ethic, Anthony Goldstein, out of a certain tiny ethnic group that won 25% of the Nobel Prizes, and, of course, striding far above everyone like a titan strolling through a pack of puppies, Hermione Granger. To run this particular experiment, you needed the test subject to learn 16 new spells, on their own, without help or correction. That meant the test subject was Hermione. Period. It should be mentioned at this point that the bats flying around the room were not glowing. Harry was having trouble accepting the implications of this. Oogelly, boogelly, Hermione said again. Again, at the tip of Hermione's wand, there was the abrupt, transitionless appearance of a bat. One moment, empty air. The next moment, bat. Its wings seemed to be already moving in the instant when it appeared. And it still wasn't glowing. Can I stop now? Are you sure, Harry said through what seemed to be a block in his throat, that maybe with a bit more practice you couldn't get it to glow? He was violating the experimental procedure he'd written down beforehand, which was a sin. And he was violating it because he didn't like the results he was getting, which was a mortal sin. You could go to science hell for that. But it didn't seem to be mattering anyway. What did you change this time? Hermione said, sounding a little weary. The durations of the ooh, eh, and e sounds. It's supposed to be three to two to two, not three to one to one. Oogly boogly. The bat materialized with only one wing and spun pathetically to the floor, flopping around in a circle on the gray stone. Now what is it really? Three to two to one. Oogly boogly. This time, the bat didn't have any wings at all and fell with a plop like a dead mouse. Three to one to two. And lo, the bat did materialize and it did fly up at once towards the ceiling, healthy and glowing a bright green. Hermione nodded in satisfaction. Okay, what next? There was a long pause. Seriously? 
You seriously have to say oogly boogly with the duration of the oo, eh, and e sounds having a ratio of three to one to two, or the bat won't glow? Why? Why? For the love of all that is sacred, why? Why not? Arr! Thud. 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 Harry had thought about the nature of magic for a while, and then designed a series of experiments based on the premise that virtually everything wizards believed about magic was wrong. You couldn't really need to say Wingardium Leviosa in exactly the right way in order to levitate something, because, come on, Wingardium Leviosa? The universe was going to check that you said Wingardium Leviosa in exactly the right way, and otherwise it wouldn't make the quill float? No. Obviously no, once you thought about it seriously. Someone, quite possibly an actual preschool child, but at any rate, some English-speaking magic user who thought that Wingardium Leviosa sounded all flyish and floaty had originally spoken those words while casting the spell for the first time, and then told everyone else it was necessary. But, Harry had reasoned, it didn't have to be that way. It wasn't built into the universe, it was built into you. There was an old story passed down among scientists, a cautionary tale, the story of Blonlow and the N-rays. Shortly after the discovery of X-rays, an eminent French physicist named Prosper René Blonlow, who had been first to measure the speed of radio waves and show that they propagated at the speed of light, had announced the discovery of an amazing new phenomenon, N-rays, which would induce a faint brightening of a screen. You had to look hard to see it, but it was there. N-rays had all sorts of interesting properties. They were bent by aluminum and could be focused by an aluminum prism into striking a treated thread of cadmium sulfide, which would then glow faintly in the dark. Soon, dozens of other scientists had confirmed Blonlow's results, especially in France. But there were other scientists, in England and Germany, who said they weren't quite sure they could see that faint glow. Blonlow had said they were probably setting up the machinery wrong. One day, Blonlow had given a demonstration of N-rays. The lights had turned out, and his assistant had called off the brightening and darkening as Blonlow performed his manipulations. It had been a normal demonstration, all the results going as expected. Even though an American scientist named Robert Wood had quietly stolen the aluminum prism from the center of Blonlow's mechanism. And that had been the end of N-rays. Reality, Philip K. Dick had once said, is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. Blonlow's sin had been obvious in retrospect. He shouldn't have told his assistant what he was doing. Blonlow should have made sure the assistant didn't know what was being tried or when it was being tried before asking him to describe the screen's brightness. It could have been that simple. Nowadays, it was called blinding, and it was one of the things modern scientists took for granted. If you were doing a psychology experiment to see whether people got angrier when they were hit over the head with red truncheons rather than with green truncheons, you didn't get to look at the subjects yourself and decide how angry they were. You would snap photos of them after they'd been hit with the truncheon and then send the photos off to a panel of raters, who would rate on a scale of 1 to 10 how angry each person looked, obviously without knowing what color truncheon they'd been hit with. Indeed, there was no good reason to tell the raters what the experiment was about at all. You certainly wouldn't tell the experimental subjects that you thought they ought to be angrier when hit by red truncheons. You'd just offer them 20 pounds, lure them into a test room, hit them with a truncheon, color randomly assigned of course, and snap the photo. In fact, the truncheon hitting and photo snapping would be done by an assistant who hadn't been told about the hypothesis, so he couldn't look expectant, hit harder, or snap the photo at just the right time. 
Blonlo had destroyed his reputation with the sort of mistake that would get a failing grade and probably derisive laughter from a TA in a first-year undergraduate course on experimental design. In 1991. But this had been a bit longer ago, in 1904, and so it had taken months before Robert Wood had formulated the obvious alternative hypothesis and figured out how to test it, and dozens of other scientists had been sucked in. More than two centuries after science had gotten started. That late in scientific history, it still hadn't been obvious. Which made it entirely plausible that in the tiny wizarding world, where science didn't seem much known at all, no one had ever tried the first, the simplest, the most obvious thing that any modern scientist would think to check. The books were full of complicated instructions for all the things you had to do exactly right in order to cast a spell. And, Harry had hypothesized, the process of obeying those instructions of checking that you were following them correctly, probably did do something. It forced you to concentrate on the spell. Being told to just wave your wand and wish probably wouldn't work as well. And once you believed the spell was supposed to work a certain way, once you had practiced it that way, you might not be able to convince yourself that it could work any other way. If you did the simple but wrong thing and tried to test alternative forms yourself. But what if you didn't know what the original spell had been like? What if you gave Hermione a list of spells she hadn't studied yet, taken from a book of silly prank spells in the Hogwarts library, and some of those spells had the correct and original instructions, while others had one changed gesture, one changed word? What if you kept the instructions constant, but told her that a spell supposed to create a red worm was supposed to create a blue worm instead? Well, in that case, it had turned out... Harry was having trouble believing his results here. If you told Hermione to say oogly-boogly with the vowel durations in the ratios of 3 to 2 to 1 instead of the correct ratio of 3 to 1 to 2, you still got a bat, but it wouldn't glow anymore. Not that belief was irrelevant here. Not that only the words and wand movements mattered. If you gave Hermione completely incorrect information about what a spell was supposed to do, it would stop working. If you didn't tell her at all what the spell was supposed to do, it would stop working. If she knew in very vague terms what the spell was supposed to do, or she was only partially wrong, then the spell would work as originally described in the book, not the way she'd been told it should. Harry was, at this moment, literally banging his head against the brick wall. Not hard. He didn't want to damage his precious brains. But if he didn't have some outlet for his frustration, he would spontaneously catch on fire. It seemed the universe actually did want you to say Wingardium Leviosa, and it wanted you to say it in a certain exact way, and it didn't care what you thought the pronunciation should be any more than it cared how you felt about gravity. Why? The worst part of it was the smug, amused look on Hermione's face. Hermione had not been okay with sitting around obediently following Harry's instructions without being told why. So, Harry had explained to her what they were testing. Harry had explained why they were testing it. Harry had explained why probably no wizard had tried it before them. Harry had explained that he was actually fairly confident in his prediction. Because, Harry had said, there was no way that the universe actually wanted you to say Wingardium Leviosa. Hermione had pointed out that this was not what her book said. Hermione had asked if Harry really thought he was smarter, at 11 years old and just over a month into his Hogwarts education, than all the other wizards in the world who disagreed with him. Harry had said the following exact words. Of course! 
Now, Harry was staring at the red brick directly in front of him and contemplating how hard he would have to hit his head in order to give himself a concussion that would interfere with long-term memory formation and prevent him from remembering this later. Hermione wasn't laughing, but he could feel her intent to laugh radiating out behind him like a dreadful pressure on his skin. Sort of like knowing you were being stalked by a serial killer, only worse. Say it, Harry said. I wasn't going to said the kindly voice of Hermione Granger. It didn't seem nice. Just get it over with. Okay, so you gave me this whole long lecture about how hard it was to do basic science and how we might need to stay on the problem for 35 years, and then you went and expected us to make the greatest discovery in the history of magic in the first hour we were working together. You didn't just hope, you really expected it. You're silly. Thank you. Now... I've read all the books you gave me, and I still don't know what to call that. Overconfidence? Planning fallacy? Super duper Lake Wobegon effect? They'll have to name it after you. Harry Bias. All right! But it is cute. It's such a boy thing to do. Drop dead. Oh, you say the most romantic things. So, what's next? Harry rested his head against the bricks. His forehead was starting to hurt where he'd been banging it. Nothing. I have to go back and design different experiments. Over the last month, Harry had carefully worked out, in advance, a course of experimentation for them that would have lasted until December. It would have been a great set of experiments if the very first test had not falsified the basic premise. Harry could not believe he had been this dumb. Let me correct myself, said Harry. I need to design one new experiment. I'll let you know when we've got it, and we'll do it, and then I'll design the next one. How does that sound? Sounds like someone wasted a whole lot of effort. Ow. He'd done that a bit harder than he'd planned. So, said Hermione. She was leaning back in her chair and the smug look was back on her face. What did we discover today? I discovered, said Harry through gritted teeth, that when it comes to doing truly basic research on a genuinely confusing problem where you have no clue what's going on, my books on scientific methodology aren't worth crap. Language, Mr. Potter. Some of us are innocent young girls. Fine. But if my books were worth a carp, that's a kind of fish, not anything bad, they would have given me the following important piece of advice. When there's a confusing problem and you're just starting out and you have a falsifiable hypothesis, go test it. Find some simple, easy way of doing a basic check and do it right away. Don't worry about designing an elaborate course of experiments that would make a grant proposal look impressive to a funding agency. Just check as fast as possible whether your ideas are false before you start investing huge amounts of effort into them. How does that sound for a moral? Mmm, okay. But I was also hoping for something like, Hermione's books aren't worthless. They're written by wise old wizards who know more about magic than I do. I should pay attention to what Hermione's books say. Can we have that moral too? Harry's jaw seemed to be clenched too tightly to let any words out, so he just nodded. Great. I like this experiment. We learned a lot from it, and it only took me an hour or so. Ah! End first half of chapter 22. The original text for this chapter can be found at fanfiction.net, or by googling Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, and there is also a link included in this file's description. To participate in this project, simply send in a reading of any minor character's lines at least three days before an episode airs. Recordings, questions, and comments can be sent to hpmorpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please help spread the word at your social forum of choice. 
If you're interested in learning more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. A link to the attributions page is found in this file's description. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the conclusion of Chapter 22, The Scientific Method. Thank you.